Uh, if you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of the Psalms. And as we consider Psalm 73, I avoided uh, Palm Sunday's sermon because I wanted to continue on with this. We will look at a resurrection sermon next Sunday, but then again, every sermon should be a resurrection sermon. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, uh, Psalm 73. This great psalm of this writer of music, uh, Asaph. Again, to put it in context, let's hear the word of the Lord, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Here's this conflict of faith that the psalmist is having. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. For they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered and when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Your right hand holds me. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Please pray for me as I try to preach this uh, sermon, this text. Do you pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, what a blessing, what a privilege it is to be called to preach your word. And yet what uh, with the Apostle Paul would say, is no sufficiency in me whatsoever. Not to comprehend the text apart from your grace, not to deliver it apart from your grace. So I ask, O oh God, for your grace and help to be with me this morning as I preach this text. I ask, O oh God, that your spirit would be with me. Pray that you would be with the congregation. And that where there are times where the thoughts drift away to here and to there and think about other things that would inf- 
infiltrate the mind. We pray that you would grant grace, O Lord, and that your spirit would be with us, that your spirit of God would help us. And may it be that it would be profitable for us to have been here this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I ask you a question. Is there anyone that you absolutely, without exception, completely trust? Fully and completely. The word trust means to have a firm reliance, confidence, or belief in something. When Melinda's stepfather was alive, I may have told you this before, he built a plane. It's called the Christian Eagle. You can look it up online. It's a beautiful biplane. It was a trick plane. It was made to fly in acrobats. And they would, I went up on it one time. You have to wear a parachute. The FAA makes you wear a parachute when you get in one of those planes. It's strapped to the seat behind you. He told me what to do. He went down, jump out, and pull this cord here. I said, are we expecting trouble? He said, this is just a law. So he fly upside down over Hattiesburg, and you can feel all this holding you in that seat of the belts around your legs. And you can really feel them pulling, hanging upside down. And so the pilot asked me how it was. I said, well, you can really feel the tension on these belts pulling. He said, well, they're like the Lord. You learn to trust them. He had complete trust in those straps. I was confident because he had trust in them that I perhaps did not. I mean, I don't know what happened if you'd fallen out. I guess you'd fall to the ground. It didn't happen, though. Trust and confidence. Trust and confidence in other people that you have someone that you know will not do you harm. They'll keep your secrets. They'll tell no tales. There will be no tale bearers uh, in uh, your life for the things that you have perhaps have shared with someone else. However, as kind and as trustworthy and as loving as someone may be, they will in a moment, disappoint you. Even without thinking, to say a sharp word, to be impatient, to find themselves being rather selfish, even the one that you trust, the one that has uh, uh, some of the secrets of your life buried within them and securely locked up in the vault of confidence, they can and will hurt you. But there's one that lives that will never, ever hurt us. I was talking to someone one time, and they talked about God's providence. They said, well, it just seems mean-spirited. And I must confess, as trying to comprehend some of the things that happen, it makes no sense whatsoever that a loving God and a gracious God and a God who has redeemed us could allow these things, indeed even ordain these things, to happen. How can it possibly be that a one-year-old child is suffering from liver cancer? How can that possibly be? And yet you see what we're doing when we think that way. We are presupposing how God is supposed to act. And we can't do that. We are sinful creatures. We are short-sighted. And we trust that our God makes no mistakes. And even when we question and don't understand His providence, we can rest with His confidence. He loves us. Do you believe that? Do you believe God loves you? 
that should formulate the direction of your life. God loves me. You may not love me. You may not like me. You may not want to be with me. But God will always be with me. And He will always love me. No matter how poorly I respond to trials. No matter how poorly I love Him back. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when people who examine our lives couldn't even tell we're a Christian. Gossip. Hurtfulness. Destruction. This morning, as we consider this briefly, to remind us that we can continue to live in faith and in confidence and hope because we know that God is a God of justice. And we know that people that seem to be getting away and indeed get away with murder in this life will be held to account. They will pay for that. They will give an answer to God. And so as we have this mentality that seems to uh, affect us again and again as we wonder why certain things are happening. And where is the God of justice? Where is the God of mercy? Where is the God of grace? He's on his throne. Just a quick reminder of you. The psalmist had lost his sense of God's justice. Asaph was a man now who was wondering, questioning perhaps even if God existed. Because this God that he worshipped, this God he wrote psalms about this God, is blessing those that are ungodly, blessing those that are wicked. And how can it be that a God who is righteous, a God who is holy, a God who is just, can shower blessings upon those who despise him, those who are worldly, those who have no concern whatsoever with doing anything to please him? And here are these people that he's observing in the days of Jerusalem. They went to the best doctors. They went to the best clinics in Jerusalem. They could afford whatever they wanted. And this man was struggling, perhaps with rebellious children, perhaps financially, perhaps physically himself. And she's observed these. She said there is no pain in their life, no pain in their death. They have it made. Well... Three things. These are not the same as last week. The justice of God is seen through through the destruction of the wicked. God's justice is seen through the destruction of the wicked. His justice should encourage repentance. And His justice is one that will guarantee our life in eternity. So in the first place, then, the justice of God is seen in the destruction of the wicked. After much anguish of heart and mind that Asaph was having, he changed. So that what he states in verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to such as appear in heart, was indeed his conviction at this point. He had been through it. He had questioned God's goodness. He had questioned, was it worthwhile for me actually to say, to serve him? Was it worthwhile for me to deprive myself of, of a life of ease, of, of a life of pleasure? Was it worthwhile at all? And he comes to the conviction, indeed it was worthwhile to live his glory and to please, please him in all things. And what has happened here? Did his circumstances change? Is it now that Asa finds himself in a position that the wicked are in, that he has all that he needs? He has, he's quite, quite wealthy. He has all the things that he could possibly desire, that God has changed the circumstances of his life. So now, you see, he likes God. He sees God as being good because God's blessed him. That's not what's happening. Not at all. As a matter of fact, if we remember, as we look back at verse um, 
Uh, uh, Anyway, he says this, uh, when he thought to understand it, it was beyond understanding. As he thought to come to explain rationally, biblically, how it could possibly be that God blesses the ungodly. And while the godly suffer, he could not make sense of it. But he moves beyond it. He moves past it as he recognizes that his God is a God, nonetheless, of justice. Circumstances have not changed. What's changed is his heart has changed. He has come to repentance. He has come to a position of his life of putting his theological spectacles on properly. And now he sees things aright. So it's not due to circumstances changing. It is due to an internal change on the part of the psalmist. And as for our own lives, you know that there are things that we really, 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 really want to change or really, really wish they were a different way and they don't change. And uh, we do one of two things, you see. We go through life embittered about God and why he won't change things and make them the way we want them. Or we accept his wisdom. We accept that He's good. We accept that He's kind. We accept that He is a God of mercy and grace. And we rest by faith in God's goodness. And what comes with a change, listen to this, what comes with a change of heart is always humility. Always humility accompanies that repentance. This is what happened with the psalmist here. He came to repentance. He saw as he was before the Lord, and he says these things in the text. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. And so this realization of God's goodness and how he acted brings him under conviction that he was entirely wrong in his way of thinking. When Jesus went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, today is Palm Sunday, you know. The people that were there were completely confused and wrong about what Jesus was doing. You remember as he came in, they shouted Hosanna to, uh, to God in the highest. Hosanna, uh, the, the uh, king of David um, uh, the, uh, is, is coming in to uh, set up his kingdom. Praise be to God. That's not what happened. Christ never said he was going to overthrow Rome. Set up an earthly kingdom. He never said that. Matter of fact, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And you know what happened after he didn't do that? After he did not set up a kingdom and place himself upon the throne so as to overthrow the oppressors of Israel, they rejected him. And the religious leaders of the day were able to turn the hearts and minds of the people against Christ. They did not comprehend Christ Correctly, Asaph did not comprehend God correctly for a time. But again, he comes to repentance and humbles himself before the Lord. And now he sees and he's reminded that God is good. And the goodness of God is seen in the destruction of the wicked. I was talking to someone one time and I said this. They didn't agree with me. If your parents, if your siblings, if your wife is being paraded off into hell at the end of the age, you will rejoice in it. 
You hear that? Then we can't think about that now. How cruel to say such a thing. We will be glorified. We will be all the more desiring God's grace to be known, His justice to be magnified, His glory to be revealed. And it will be that glory shall be revealed at the destruction of the wicked, no matter who they are, or no matter what your relationship here might have been. There we see them being paraded off into condemnation. There we see them being cast into the lake of fire, as Charles read a moment ago. And we won't cry. We won't regret. We'll rejoice in the destruction of the wicked, no matter who they are. Because there our minds will have been made perfect, glorified, righteous altogether without any taint of sin or irrational emotion. And as Asaph observed these people that he's talking about here in this psalm, we are not to suppose that they were notorious sinners. We're not to suppose that they were necessarily adulterers or murderers. They may have been good neighbors even. But they had no interest in the things of God. And they failed to render God the glory and gratitude they should have had for the blessings they received from his hand. And they were praying throughout the earth, no interest in things of God whatsoever. And this man who is wicked thinks that, supposes that, reasons that, I'm completely safe. I've got this, I've got that. I did it by my own effort, I'm autonomous, and I am completely safe. But we read here in the text, that's not the facts at all. As he says here, surely you put them in slippery places. Surely they are not really secure. Uh, They, as a matter of fact, be swept away in a moment. Some of you may know of a poem. The name of the poem is Invictus. It's Latin meaning unconquerable. William Ernest Henley wrote it. How many of you all know that poem? I'm going to read it to you. It's not long. It sounds like the song My Way that uh, Elvis did that. I think uh, Frank Sinatra did it as well, although Elvis changed the words to it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the felt clutch of circumstance, they have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but not bowed. Beyond this plain of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Foolish, 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 foolish man. He's not the captain of his soul. He is not in control of his own destiny. Not at all. Al Martin, one time preaching on the destruction of the space shuttle Challenger years and years and years ago, said this. His first point, man does not, he cannot, nor will he ever be able to control his own destiny. And the people that he's describing here in this psalm are people who are convinced that they have what they have by their own working, and God had nothing to do with it. And that was the problem with Asaph. Why are they prospering? Why are they not being held accountable? And he says this, he comes to this, they are going to be held accountable. They are at this moment under the wrathful eye of God, who sees everything, who sees the heart, who knows and who judges properly. This God who is his God as the one who has real power. 
their power is illusion. Shadows without substance. He renders them, when he will, absolutely helpless. I don't know about you. But as for me, I'm glad to know that the wicked are going to pay for the wickedness they commit throughout this world. And I'll tell you what, from talking to some lawyers, there are things that happen in this city that you would not believe. The first time I heard about one of them, I could not believe such a thing happened in the city. It happens. And we would want to take that person that does that type of thing out and deal with them. That's not our job. It is to protect those that we can't protect. But for people that have done the things I'm thinking about, that have been engaged in the things I'm thinking about, the things that are absolutely unthinkable, God will deal with them. Should I weep over that? No, sir. I want to see the justice of God displayed in this world. And the day is coming, as the psalmist says here, they will meet an end. They will come to an end quickly. They put their confidence, their trust in their prosperity, in the things that they have, in their reputation, and it will be gone in a moment. He says, as we wake up from a dream and it's gone, so will their, their confidence, so will uh, their place be gone in a moment. And you know what it's like when you wake up from a dream. It may be a wonderful dream. And a few hours later, even an hour later, you can't remember it. Unless you write it down, you forget about it. You ever had dreams of you're flying? You ever had dreams of you're flying? I can never control it. It says something about me, I'm sure. I'm kind of floating all over the place. Try to go somewhere, I can't do it. I've also had dreams of breathing underwater. Those are fun dreams. When you wake up, it's over. That's what he's saying here. Uh, uh, in a moment, as when one wakes from a dream, their life is nothing more than a dream. And in a moment, when they wake God will reveal that to them, the foolishness of their own ways. Well, the second thing is the justice of God should encourage repentance. Listen to the description uh, that he gives to himself here. Again, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, like a beast towards you. Reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar when he's afflicted. Remember, he went out and lived among the cattle and ate grass and his fingernails grew like talons in his hair, like feathers, uh, unclean, stuck together. Uh, here this man comes to convict. This is a man, this is an expression of conviction before God. I was brutish. I was ignorant. I knew better. I knew better because I had been instructed so. I knew better because I knew you, O oh God, in a very personal way. I knew that these things I was thinking were not true, and yet I was overwhelmed by my own sin. I lived, he says, in effect, like an animal. John Blanchard was, in, I don't know if John Blanchard's still living or not. He was at R.O.M. one year. He spoke, and he was, uh, wrote some books. He was speaking to some children at a high school uh, somewhere, and they weren't paying attention to him. They were cutting up, carrying on. So Dr. Blanchard asked them a question. How many of you pray before your meal? Not many raised their hand. Then he said this. How many of you have seen pigs pray before they eat? And, of course, there were snickers and no one raised their hand. And he said this. You all think about God about as much as pigs do. That kind of hit a, hit a chord with them. And they began to listen.
when he said that to them. Y'all think about God about as much as pigs do. Here, these individuals, this man who writes this psalm was in that place for a time. I was brutish. I was acting like one who had no sense. I was a beast, he says, towards you. Without reason. And I acted in a very, very ungodly fashion. His life was full of bile. His life was full of bitterness, melancholy, bad-tempered, and irritable. He was obsessing with the well-being of the wicked. And he refused to let God be God and treat people as God sees fit to treat them. And again, the riddle consumed him so that he got into a very, very bad way. His soul was embittered. His heart was pricked. Until he came to a sense of God's justice and God's holiness and God's goodness. No matter what, listen to this, no matter what you're facing in life, no matter what you're dealing with in life, no matter how hard the road is to hoe, God loves you if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you can become, become a believer by asking God, asking Christ to have mercy upon you, embracing the gospel of Christ. That he always has and always has loved you. Always. What does it say, Jeremiah 31.3? Anybody know Jeremiah 31.3? Bad shoulder. Now, it's one of our memory verses. Come on. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you to myself in loving kindness. Jeremiah 31, 3. So there never was a moment in eternity past when God did not love us. When God did not love you. But there was a moment in time when His grace grabbed you and He took you from being one who was worldly thinking, worldly mannered, consumed with the things of this life, to now being consumed with the things of Christ as you came to repentance and faith. The last thing is the justice of God uh, guarantees our place in glory. Listen, to what, notice this. In verse uh, 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me. You hold my right hand. This is the psalmist saying this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. No matter how steeped in foolishness he was, no matter how erroneous his thinking was, God was always with him. Always. He was not always pleased with him, but God was always with him. And there God's hand was with him. He says, you hold me by your right hand. In other words, God gives us guidance. So it was God, by his grace, that brought him out of that mindset to repentance. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and I determined their end. As he went in and he began to worship God. Then he saw things aright. God was always with me. He holds me in his hand. You remember in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking and he said, uh, uh, I hold you in my hand. No one can pluck you out. The Father holds me in his hand. No one can pluck you out. There's that doctrine, the security of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. It is God who perseveres us. And not that we persevere ourselves, but God's grace holds on to us. He will not let us go. 
just as he brought Asaph to repentance. So when we get on a road of rebellion, God will bring us off of that road. Now hear this. It might be the way he gets you off of that road is by your own death. In Corinthians, what does he say? Y'all going to the Lord's table? You're doing it all wrong. People are budding in front of one another. People are getting drinking so much they're getting drunk. He said, unless you discern the body of Christ right, don't go to the table. And he says, some of you are sick. Some of you have fallen asleep. And that's the way God brings us out of some sins sometimes. He takes our life. That doesn't seem cruel. It shouldn't seem cruel at all. Because God will have you to be holy. God will have you to be righteous. And whatever it takes, he will do to preserve us and to keep us from being in rebellion continually without coming to repentance. So God does two things here very quickly. Uh, He guides him. How does he do that? How does he guide us? By his word, his teaching, by his providence and grace. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And that way of the absolute necessity of knowing the scriptures and the necessity of coming to worship and sitting under the proclamation of God's word. When I was growing up, you know, now when you go to a doctor's office, the, the examining room, they shut the door. They didn't do that when I was growing up. They left the door wide open. And I remember seeing some children. I didn't know what was wrong with them. But I know they were screaming. And they were body holding them down, holding their head to one side. And all these people forcing themselves upon this child. And this guy, doctor, had this long old needle thing. And he stuck it in his ear. They were piercing the eardrum. Lancing the ear. Why? Because on the other side of that eardrum was a whole bunch of nasty stuff, and it was pushing the eardrum out. Once he lances it, the pressure's removed, and the pain's gone. I did not know what they were doing, but I knew this. I never want that to have to happen to me, ever. I did not want to, I've been through enough. I did not want to have to go through that. It just looked like they were torturing the children. But what they were doing was for their good. There are times when we go through difficult trials. And again, there are things in our life, even now, that we cannot fully understand why God has allowed these things to happen. But we trust that whatever the reason may be, it is for our good. If I'm reading this quote to you, there are truths which cannot be shaken and which we must resolve to live by, though we are not able to reconcile all the disposals of providence. The chief principle is this. God is good. The principle of our life, God is good. And the veil of tears, as we were dealing with a very unpleasant providence, God is good. And pray that God would use your hurts, your disappointments, your trials for your own spiritual good. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Our former mistakes, indeed, our sins are a blessing when they lead us to God. When they lead us to God, those things that would drive us to the Lord, he says, those things are blessings. And I think we look at our own lives and say, where is it that we find ourselves as far as the attitude is concerned? These people that he mentions here in the psalm, the people who are wicked. 
When are the times that we are arrogant and proud in our own lives? When do we look down on others who simply cannot help the condition they're in? And we look scornfully at them and we judge them and it should not be so. There's when we are acting brute, like brute beast, bringing judgment against those who are in need, judgment against those who perhaps are sick or something along those lines, not to their own doing at all. We don't want to be like the people prior to repentance. We want to be like Asaph, who when he came to his senses, praised God glorified God and recognized God is always with me, always with me, always love me. Do you know him this morning as your personal Savior? If you're not, I would encourage you to come to repentance. And if you do know him, rejoice in his goodness and ask him to give you the grace to see his hand of mercy and kindness in all circumstances. Let's pray.